This message is the Shroud of Turin, the burial cloth of Christ. Is the Shroud of Turin, the burial cloth of Christ. Let me say this. The last thing on earth I want to do is divide the church. The last, and I'm not talking about Trinity Bible Fellowship. We, we have our, our you know, little differences in certain areas on non-essential matters, and we still love one another. But I'm talking about the Christian church in general. There are good, godly Christian people who believe the Shroud of Turin is a forgery. Josh McDowell, one of my favorite defenders of the faith, is one of those guys. Um, I don't believe he's examined the evidence, though. Uh, he bases his arguments, his two pages of arguments, on the, the uh, arguments of an anti-Christian atheist uh, whose views were disproven in 1978 uh, scientific research uh, project done on the Shroud of Turin. Uh, I agree with my, my old professor, Gary Habermas. Uh, he teaches at Liberty University. It's not a liberal school. It's Jerry Falwell School, Lib Liberty University, which, by the way, just recently won the third national the third national title in the as far as debate goes in a row first time a university in america's history has won three straight national debate titles um, but it's jerry falwell school and dr gary habermas has published two books defending uh, the thesis that the shroud of turin is in fact the burial cloth of christ when you leave today you might feel bad. You might say, well, Pastor Phil, I think it's a fake. I think you're out to lunch. Hey, the fact that you trust in Jesus for salvation, that makes us brothers and sisters in the Lord. You can disagree with me on this. This is not an essential. So I'm not here to divide. For those of you who, who believe it's, a, it's, it's a, a, a fake, I would just ask you to be open-minded and look into this and examine the evidence uh, but the fact of the matter is, you don't have to believe in the shroud to be saved. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus to be saved. So again, it's not my purpose here to divide. Uh, when, we're going to, when we examine the shroud of Turin, though, it, it will give us some insight into the sufferings of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, on the cross of Calvary. And, uh, and you'll see that a a as we proceed. My first point today is that there are two extremes that we should avoid. Two extremes that we should avoid. And both of these ex extremes, unfortunately, uh, you can find professing Christians in both camps. Uh, the first uh, extreme to um, uh, avoid is idolatry. Idolatry. Take a look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. And it reads, you shall not make for yourself an idol. This is one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself an idol or uh, any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. God forbids us to make an image of him or to have an image of him and to bow down and to worship it. We worship God and we worship him alone. Uh, there are people today that are idolaters, that actually, the very few of them, not a whole lot of them, but there are people 
that uh, basically worship the shroud and they worship other religious relics, you know, the uh, little chunk of the kneecap of uh, St. Harry from the 12th century or something, and they'll venerate it and that type of thing. That is not biblical. We worship God, we worship God alone. So even if this does turn out to be genuine, the genuine burial cloth of the Lord Jesus, uh, we do not worship it. All it means is that that would be added evidence uh, to the truth, to the fact that he has risen from the dead. Uh, the second extreme to avoid is uninformed skepticism. Uninformed skepticism. If you listen to what I have to say today with an open mind, and then at the end of the service you say, I still think it's a fraud, uh, then at least you will have listened to a case, a well-thought-out, well-prepared case for the Shroud of Turin as the burial cloth of Christ. What bothers me is that there's too many people who will read, you know, one or two pages by Josh McDowell or read the writings of a guy named McCone, Dr. McCone, a, a fire-breathing anti-Christian atheist, and assume that this guy has proven it to be a painting. And so without examining the evidence, they just, they're just uh, they opposed to it, and they say, no, the shroud's not the burial cross, the cloth of Christ, it's a forgery, and they haven't examined the evidence. What I want us to do is examine the evidence, then make up your mind, Okay. First um, Thessalonians 5.21 tells us to test all things and hold fast to that which is good. We as Christians should examine all things in the light of God's word and in the light of the evidence and then determine whether or not we are to hold to a certain uh, belief. So let's avoid those two extremes. Uh, number two, I'd like to give a brief description of the shroud. The shroud is an ancient linen cloth, and by the way, some people say, well, no shroud could, could last for 2,000 years. Hey, we've got cloths from mummies that are 1,000 years before the time, date back to 1,000 years before the time of Christ, that are still around. So cloths do, if they're kept nice, if, if people respect the cloths for some reason and take good care of them, they could last for thousands of years. But it's an ancient linen cloth thought by many to be the burial cloth of Christ. It is 14 feet 3 inches long and 3 feet 7 inches wide. On it there is a head-to-head -head image of a crucified man, uh, both sides of the body. Okay, the, the front side and then the head just almost touches the other side, the, the head, the image of the other side of the body. Yeah, if you, if you want to turn right now, feel free to just turn. And uh, the, the first page, what you see... If you were looking at the shroud, about half of the shroud is there on the right side of that page. The real light color thing. See, this is one of the things that amazed me about the shroud when I was about 12 or 13 years old. By the way, I was not a believer. I was raised in Roman Catholicism, but I was at an age where I found out, okay, you know, Santa Claus isn't real, the Easter Bunny's not real, and I thought, well, Jesus wasn't real either. And then all of a sudden, I, was, I don't know if I was 12, 13, or 14 years old, Reader's Digest came out with a big article on, on some of the scientific evidence for the shroud of Turin. And when I looked at that, it blew me away. And I thought, I even went out and bought a picture of Jesus, and don't ask me why, but uh, I started to think maybe what my father told me about Jesus is true. Maybe it's not a fairy tale. And, uh, but the thing that struck out of my mind, and I was just a little kid, 
was the fact that the shroud, you look at that dark picture, that is not a picture of the shroud. That's a negative of, of a picture of the shroud. The shroud itself is basically, if you had to characterize it, we don't know how to duplicate it. With all our scientific technology, we cannot duplicate the image. Every time we, we do something that gives it the definition that is, gives it all the definition that is in the shroud, we burn right through the cloth, okay? So we don't have the technology to repeat this. So if it's a, a 14th century forgery, somebody back then had more scientific knowledge in this area than our scientific geniuses today. But the closest thing that came to this is the, the shadows of human beings that were caused by the, uh, uh, the, the uh, dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Okay? This deserves a little bit of thought here. Okay? This deserves a little bit of, of thought. So, so basically what I'm getting at is there's much more details in a photographic negative of the shroud than there is in the shroud itself. In fact, there's so little detail seen in the shroud itself that for centuries it appears they folded it up just around the head, figuring why, why keep it all the way exposed when you can you could just barely make it out. The head is the clearest thing. Let's just let's just fold it around the head, okay? And we'll see that when we examine the history of the shroud. But basically, you know, you get a guy Secondo Pia was his name, an Italian guy, 1898, he takes a photograph of the shroud. Thinks, you know, this is cool, I'll take a photograph of the shroud. Then he goes into his dark room and uh, he starts developing the negatives. And then he almost freaks out. He was the first guy to see this and saw that, you know, and I don't know too many painters who can paint a painting that has more detail in its photographic negative than it does in the original. In fact, I don't, I don't even think that's possible, okay? So keep in mind, the shroud is the more blurred image. You can't really make it out as good. It's the lighter image. It's the negatives of the shroud where, uh, where you get all the details, which basically means that uh, uh, the shroud itself would be almost the equivalent of a photographic uh, negative made before we had the uh, scientific technology called photography. Um, but whatever the case, that shows about half of the shroud. If you look back, at the last page, the pink page, I made them different colors so that hopefully I'll keep the confusion down to a minimum. Now, uh, on the right side of that page, this was actually a much larger painting by a 16th century artist. And uh, the top half of it actually is a painting of the shroud itself. And everybody agrees that the shroud was in existence at that time, okay? And, uh, but for some reason, they cut that out in, in the photo that I'm copying from, so um, you don't see it. But, but basically, the way it would have been formed, the shroud would have been wrapped around the body of a deceased man, uh, just like this photo includes, and so that's how you have the image of the front of the body and the back of the body as well. And then when you open the cloth and extend it uh, lengthwise, you would have a head-to-head -head image if it left an image there, okay? And in this case, uh, an image was left. Uh, it's currently, the Shroud of Turin is currently kept in uh, Turin, Italy, which is why it's called the Shroud of Turin. Uh, 
it has the image of a crucified man who's between five foot ten and six feet tall. Now, originally, skeptics said, well, no, no guys were that tall back then. They were all a lot shorter, but they, uh, in the not-too-distant past, they found a, an ancient Jewish cemetery of around, from around that time. And they found the average height of a man was about five foot four in that cemetery. But they did find, uh, I think, at least one guy that was five foot ten, and even another guy who was six foot tall. Uh, skeletons of guys, okay? Um, so basically, if this is the burial cloth of Christ, then Christ was a tall man. Also, the uh, image, uh, they would estimate the weight at about 175 to 190 just by the, the dimensions, the uh, appearance between 175 pounds and 190 pounds. Uh, the man in the shroud was very muscular, not like a bodybuilder, but much like a real hard worker um, involved in physical work and that type of thing. And, and when you read about the Lord Jesus and the fact that the apostles had a hard time keeping up with him and he would travel 20 miles a day, most of the time uphill if you know about the geography in Palestine. And uh, so he had uh, uh, pretty, pretty good control over his body. He was in very good shape. And there's even some who argue that there's uh, some clear Semitic features uh, in the man in the shroud and that it might be that issue might be debated just because the face is so so badly battered okay uh, uh, so that's a brief description of the shroud now point number three is very important if there's only one thing you remember I hope it's this if you turn to 1 Corinthians 15 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 to 8 the Shroud of Turin is not essential to, to the case for the resurrection. If tomorrow they prove that the Shroud was a fake, it would not lessen my confidence, my belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay? Now, it does corroborate a solid case. In other words, what I'm saying is, the historical case for Christ's resurrection from the dead can be based on the fact that reliable eyewitnesses testified that they had seen this guy risen from the dead, and they were sincere enough about their beliefs because they were willing to go to horrible deaths because, because of this. They believed because Jesus conquered death, and we know he conquered death, we saw him, because of that, we are willing to be thrown to the lions to be nailed to crosses, to be stoned, to be battered, to be beaten, to be put to death, because we know when this life ends, a better one begins, and we've been guaranteed eternal joy by the Lord Jesus, the risen Savior. Uh, that's the case for the resurrection. I want to just read one passage from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. The Apostle Paul, who himself saw Jesus alive after he had uh, risen from the dead, the Apostle Paul lists... And he's a leader in the church. He's telling the Corinthians, if you guys don't believe me, go check this out. There's plenty of eyewitnesses that are still alive. And, uh, but he basically outlines the evidence for the resurrection of Christ from the dead. By the way, even liberal critics date 1 Corinthians 15 to between 52 and 54 A.D. And they admit that the Apostle Paul did write it. And they don't want to call Paul a liar. Okay? And they also admit that this... Uh, passage comes from an ancient creed originally spoken or sung. It could have been a hymn spoken in the churches or a creed recited in the churches which dates back to the mid-30s A.D. Okay? 
So anybody who's telling you that, uh, oh, Jesus' resurrection is just a legend, you turn around and tell them, how can you get a legend that that it completely develops and is full-blown so that the leaders of a movement believe this legend is true just three to five years after the death of Christ? I mean, that's impossible. Legends take several hundred, hundreds of years to become fully developed. The, the legend of the deification of Buddha uh, took several centuries before it even got started. Okay? Um, but basically, uh, just take a look at what Paul said. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He's using rabbinical terminology, the, the language of the rabbis, the, the language that the rabbis, the Jewish teachers would use when they would pass on oral tradition. He uses that same language, and then he says something that's real choppy in the Greek, but when you translate it back into the Aramaic, the Hebrew of Paul's day, it flows like a poem. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's the Aramaic name for Peter, then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also." And so what I'm saying is that the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the case for the resurrection, is based upon reliable eyewitness testimony. Sincere eyewitnesses who are sincere enough about their belief that Jesus had risen from the dead that they were willing to die for those claims. And if you want me to, I, can, I don't have the, it here. Uh, but in my library, I can produce for you the documentation of ancient writings of Roman emperors and uh, Roman governors who basically stated that all Christians have to do uh, when we sentence them to death, if they, if they bow down before our false gods and deny Christ, we'll set them free. If they refuse to deny Christ, then we'll put them to death. So... Uh, these people were sincere enough to die for their belief that Jesus had risen from the dead. And uh, it's, uh, the case for the resurrection is based on reliable eyewitness testimony. Uh, at this point, what I'd like to do, if you turn to Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50. I want to give a brief biblical description of Christ's suffering, his death, and his burial. This is important because... A good portion of the suffering that Christ went through on the cross of Calvary and, and leading up to it, a good portion of that suffering was unique. I mean, I, you know, a crown of thorns. You don't say, hey, uh, let's crucify Joe Schmo. So the Romans are taking Joe Schmo to be crucified, and then another Roman soldier says, hey, wait a minute, you forgot his crown of thorns. That's, that's not part of the normal procedure. The reason why they put a crown of thorns on Christ was because this guy had made a claim to be some kind of a king. And they were putting him to death for treason, and so the Roman soldiers mocked him and said, Oh yeah, you call yourself a king, let's make you a crown. And they put a crown of thorn 
uh, crown of thorns uh, on his head. So that's, that was unique to Christ. Uh, but take a look at Isaiah 50, verses 5 and 6. Um, but, uh, just look at verse 6 of Isaiah 50. And here, here's a prediction. 700 years before Christ's sufferings, it says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. Remember that later on in this message. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Christ did not fight back when Roman soldiers, Roman soldiers that he had created as the Almighty God, he did not fight back when they spit into his face. He did not fight back when they tore out pieces of his beard when they mocked him, and when they whipped him. Uh, take a look at Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15. Isaiah 52, 13 to 15. God says this, God the Father says this, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. By the way, the idea of being lifted up throughout the New Testament especially uh, Christ talks about it sometimes as being exalted, but most of the time it means being lifted up on a cross. You see, Christ's humiliation, his shameful death, also the Father used that to glorify Christ and to exalt him. Uh, but go on a little further, it says, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Um, We'll just stop right there, but it's just basically talking about somehow the appearance of Christ is going to be marred. He's going to be battered more than any other man. Um, we're going to see evidence of this uh, in the shroud. You, you don't usually whip a guy. Most guys were not healthy enough to survive a Roman scourging. So, I mean, you would take away all the Roman soldiers' fun and the terror that would come upon all the non-Roman citizens, because you only crucified non-Roman citizens, you would take away all of this terror and all of this fun for these demented, uh, I, don't know, I can't remember if the word is masochist or sadist, but basically uh, you would take all this away by whipping a guy because you'd probably kill him. There's a good chance you're going to kill a guy by scourging him. Now in Christ's case, he tried, he figured, hey, this looks like a healthy man. We'll scourge him, and maybe that'll satisfy the Jewish religious leaders, and then maybe they'll let him go so I don't have to crucify this innocent man. It didn't work, so he ended up having to do both. Very, very rare. You don't whip a guy before you uh, execute him through crucifixion. It's not the norm. And Jesus' case is very, uh, very unique. Um, and but Christ was battered and beaten. Uh, Isaiah 53, the whole chapter, when you look upon that, that the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. That He was punished in our place. That He suffered uh, for our sins. Uh, we don't have time to turn to Psalm 22, but Psalm 22 says, They have pierced my hands and my feet. They cast lots for my garments. And so... Uh, uh, and by the way, Psalm 22 starts out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which Jesus quoted from the cross, which every believing Jew who was present should have remembered Psalm 22 
and it should have clicked. Uh, this is the Jewish Messiah. His hands and his feet are pierced, and they're casting lots um, for his garments. Take a look at John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Verses 1 to 3. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him blows in the face. The Scriptures teach they beat Christ's face. These are Roman soldiers. These are not wimps. These are the United States Marines of their days. These were the the most elite fighting force on earth. I mean, the Roman soldiers had to be good. They, they ruled the world. And they didn't do it through peace. They had to conquer in order to get where they, where they were. And they were beating him in the face. They put a crown of thorns on his head, and he was scourged. Very unique to Christ, uh, those three aspects before uh, crucifixion. Uh, take a look at uh, verse 18. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. So the scriptures say that after being scourged and beaten, and with a crown of thorns on his head, uh, crown of thorns on his head, he was then crucified. A little further, verses 31 to 34, also very unique to Christ. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day asked Pilate, that's the Roman governor, that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. You see, the Romans were these uh, experts in torture. They knew how to kill guys, they knew how to kill them quick, and they knew how to kill them slow. And the problem with crucifixion was when your arms are supporting your whole body like that, you get in a position where you can no longer breathe, and you die within minutes. And the Roman soldiers didn't want that. They wanted to torture a guy for long periods of time. So what they did was, they were very ingenious, they put a little block of wood under your feet. And as much as it would hurt to push off with, nail, with a nail through your feet, uh, if you push off, you can get just a little bit more air. And by pushing off every so often, some guys would last two or three days on the cross. Can you imagine that, being crucified naked in front of people, a shameful death, and taking two or three days to die? Well, the Jews had a problem with this. Because every once in a while, the guys would be hanging on the cross so long that it would enter one of their holy days, and corpses make a holy day unclean. And so they would have to ask permission that the, these guys would be put to death quicker. So what the Roman soldiers would do is they'd take either the, the ankles or the legs, and they'd break the legs... And the guys could no longer push off and they would die within moments. Okay? Now they come to Jesus and uh, it turns out that Jesus was already dead. Verses 32 and 33. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with them. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. You see, two, probably two reasons for this. Number one, he had just been scourged. And we're going to talk about Roman whipping. Uh, literally, the, the Romans would, would design their whips so it, it could tear off chunks of flesh. 
It could expose the bones. And if you didn't die immediately, most guys would die, uh, you know, from uh, uh, infection uh, a month or two later. So the coming to Jesus, when they saw the second reason why Jesus surrendered his life, and he may have just decided, okay, the suffering is sufficient. He may have just surrendered it uh, uh, at that point. But he voluntarily gave up his life. But I think the primary factor there was the scourging that he had received. Uh, that's why Simon was, was asked to carry Christ's cross. Because of the beating that he had received, it was getting to the point he could no longer carry it. But coming to Jesus when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. Now, modern medical science has proven to us that um, when it appears to be a, a transparent fluid alongside the blood, uh, when that part of the body has been punctured, um, it, it basically lets you know the person is already dead. You do not get that type of phenomenon in a living human being. And, and the fact of the matter is the... The Shroud of Turin, there's evidence uh, of both the clear liquid and the blood, and there is a side that is pierced. Uh, there are also puncture wounds in the head, and uh, very similar uh, with the Lord Jesus. The burial clothes, I've, I've got the passages listed down there. Josh, McDowell's and, uh, Josh McDowell and others have argued that Jesus had a face cloth, uh, uh, because the Scripture says a face, face cloth, that a cloth was just put over his head, just one little cloth, and that he was basically wrapped like a mummy, okay? And that's, that's the way uh, a lot of people have been arguing. Not so. Uh, when we find skeletons uh, of, of ancient Jews that died, it's, it's, it's like the Shroud of Turin. The face cloth that is spoken about, by the way, the burial clothes, you're talking about the one piece is the shroud wrapped totally around you. Another piece is a cloth that covers the, the loin area. Then the hands are tied... The feet are tied together with just a linen strap, and then the face cloth is rolled up. I mean, it's, it says that, and it's, it's a lot clearer in the Greek than it is in the uh, English, but it says it in, uh, like, uh, uh, John chapter 11, verses 43 and 44, John 19, we don't have time to turn there right now, John 19, 39 and 40, John chapter 20, verses 48, even Luke 23... Luke 24, Matthew 27, when you put all these together, you find basically what the Jews did, and there's evidence of this on the shroud, they would roll a cloth together and then tie it around the head as if you had a toothache, okay? And everything, there's a reason for everything that they're doing, okay? Uh, dead people's bodies have nerve reactions, so the eyes open, the mouth open sometimes, a hand will just start sticking up, okay? And so you tie the hands to keep them together, you tie the feet to keep them together. You wrap this, you roll this cloth and wrap it around the head to keep the mouth from opening. And then they put coins. More on that later, but they put coins on the eyes to keep the eyes closed. Okay? And then they wrap you real tight in a shroud. Now you can imagine why Jesus said that Lazarus had to be unwrapped when he came out of the tomb. I mean, a shroud is really... Shroud is designed for certain purposes, and one of them is not movement, okay? And, uh, and so you can imagine uh, Lazarus coming out of the tomb, risen from the dead by the Lord Jesus, uh, coming out in that state. But all of this is consistent with the shroud. Uh, 
Now what I want to do is look at some of the details found on the shroud. Um, as we mentioned, the different pieces of the shroud, the shroud itself going around the entire body, the, the head wrapping kind of like if you had a, a sword tooth wrapped around the head tied on the top to keep the mouth from opening, the hands, uh, uh, a linen strip uh, wrapped around your uh, wrist to keep your hands from moving, the same uh, around the uh, ankles to keep the legs from, from moving. Um, and by the way, we can't really see this too well, but under scientific, under scientific examination, they found, uh, if, you, if you look on the real picture of the shroud on the orange page, um, not the negative, but you'll see like a white area surrounding the face. They think that that was some kind of cloth that didn't put its image on the shroud. Okay, and so that was probably the uh, face cloth twisted and tied around his head, much like the cartoons when somebody has a toothache and that type of thing. And they found evidence for the, the hands and the, the feet and that type of thing. is perfectly consistent uh, with the uh, Jewish form of burial in that day. Uh, look on the uh, third page, the purple page. The frontal view, there has a, uh, I think it's the fifth line down, it says distended abdomen, distended abdomen, it, it basically means that the abdomen shows, shows a certain kind of features, uh, and those features are basically consistent with the corpse uh, of someone who has died of, of, of uh, asphyxiation, which, by the way, uh, is what you would die of if you were crucified, uh, right, you know, with your head up. Uh, Peter was crucified upside down. You would die from a different cause. The, the blood would pour into the brain, would basically explode the brain. But, but uh, asphyxiation is what would kill you. You would not be able to breathe anymore. And it would basically cause, I don't know if it causes fluid to, fluid to, to, to fill into the uh, stomach area or whatever, but whatever the case, uh, that feature there is evidence that the man in the shroud died of asphyxiation. By the way, a lot of these things that we're talking about were not proven in the 14th century when, when some people try to claim that this was a forgery and this was when it was made. These were not medical facts, medical known facts at that time. Okay? So a forger would not have had any inclination, any idea about these types of things. Uh, also, the one in the corpse... There's signs that he was in the state of rigor mortis, okay? That, his, that his, he has recently died, and they probably had to really tug on his arms to get his arms down and that type of thing. Um, you have uh, the wrist, the feet, and the side are all pierced, which is consistent with the crucifixion of, of Christ. There's puncture wounds, multiple pu puncture wounds through the, throughout the scalp. And if you... Continue to look, while we're talking about this, continue to look at the purple page. You'll get a lot of that information on the back side that talks about the blood from scalp punctures, okay? Um, and that was very, you know, most guys who claimed to be some kind of a king did not get uh, crucified. This is very unique. Uh, the face is tremendously bruised, which is consistent with what the scriptures say, both Old and New Testament. 
Um, the Roman soldiers beat him about the face. Um, you have over 120 wounds on the body. Some will argue for about 220. Problem is, is the, the big debate rages over how creative the Romans were at torture. And uh, I, I would say I would uh, I would say that probably 120 wounds is, is safer because uh, um, when they whipped you with the whip, instead of having one strand, it would branch out usually to four different strands. So right there, to be whipped once is like being whipped four times. But then beyond that, on each one of these little strands, but that would give you four separate wounds right there. But then on the end of these would be usually some jagged piece of bone or metal that would be sharp on both ends. So in other words, two, two puncture wounds uh, could be evidence of one, one particular strike. So whether you see it as two wounds or one wound, uh, when it comes to the scourging, it's hard to, hard to say. But it was designed to tear up flesh and to literally rip flesh off a human being. And uh, uh, by the way, uh, uh, it was thought by the ancient man 40 lashes would kill a man. So you, uh, a Roman citizen, you would whip him 40 minus 1, 39 times. But there was no such rule for a non-Roman uh, citizen. So basically, um, you get whipped until the Roman soldiers were bored with doing it, okay? Um, let's see, uh, there's also, by the way, uh, this is from 1978, the Shroud of Turin research, it was the most extensive, it was, it's called STIRP, is it STIRP? Yeah, the Shroud of Turin uh, research uh, project. And in 1978, it was the most, the longest and most thorough examination on the shroud itself, okay? And that's where they ruled out the view that Josh McDowell holds to, which comes from this guy named McCone, who still holds to it, who tries to say that it was, it was a painting and it was a forgery. Um, but anyway, from their research, they determined that there's shoulder abrasions from carrying uh, a heavy object, that left its effects by, uh, I don't know if it was, uh, it basically left, somehow left its effect uh, uh, upon the body and caused certain kinds of bruising so they could see that after this guy already had some wounds, all of a sudden then he's got a heavy object that is rubbing against it. And what we know now is from ancient times when they made you carry your cross, it was only the cross beam and you would get the cross beam on your back and, and you would have to carry it to your crucifixion and uh, that, that could have caused that. Now you, you tell me how an ancient forger or a forger from the 14th century is going to figure out all this stuff. Uh, you also have knee contusions. Okay? And uh, I don't think they're listed here. Now, they're not listed on this, uh, in this particular diagram, but they found knee contusions so that they think that this person fell on his knees a couple times, at least a few times, which would have been why they uh, then had uh, Simon carry Christ's cross, if this is, in fact, uh, the burial cloth of Christ. Um, the, the ankles and the legs were not broken on whoever the man in the shroud was, so it appears to be a crucifixion 
crucifixion victim whose side was pierced instead of his legs uh, being uh, broken so he was basically dead before taken down from the cross and even the pierced side because there's the uh, the po it's a post-mortem chest wound there's evidence of not just water but also a clear liquid substance which means it's, it's a post-mortem wound uh, the guy was stabbed in the side after he was already dead okay and then you also have a torn beard uh, I don't want to make too much of this but Isaiah said that they would you know tear at his beard um, look at the last page it's kind of a close-up of the face and we can't really make out the beard too much but it looks it looks a little weird well what it is it, it looks like it's a two-pronged beard a two-pointed beard that's been ripped so much that it might even look like a three-pronged uh, beard. Now, now take a look at the yellow page before it. This was, I believe, from the World Book Encyclopedia. It was on all paintings of Christ and stuff like that. From I think it was like 1958 edition. And uh, the first two photos in the upper left-hand corner, they're paintings of Christ. When you look down at the bottom, it says that they're from a, they date back to the second century. 2nd century A.D. That's between 100 and 200 A.D. Why in the world would they paint pictures of Christ with blood splattered all over him and then with three-pointed beards? Okay? Now, you may not agree with me, but I think that between 100 and 199 A.D., the apostles who knew Jesus personally have already died. So you can't talk to somebody who saw Jesus face to face so if you wanted to paint a picture of him, you went to this famous cloth uh, that had his face on it, and then they look, and the face is all battered, and they just try to paint it as close to it as they can get. And what you end up with is blood spots in the same place. In fact, the, the, the drawing in the upper left-hand corner, it looks like because of the face cloth rolled around Christ's head, uh, it looks like they just decided not to draw the hair on the outside. They weren't sure if that was hair or something else over his head. And so, basically, it looks like a drawing of the Shroud of Turin, except uh, it doesn't have the hair on the outside there. And, by the way, what I'm doing with this here, uh, experts in art um, uh, have done this with literally uh, hundreds of uh, ancient paintings of Christ, that predate uh, the 14th century supposed date of the shroud uh, by hundreds of years and many of them go back to the second century like this so some paintings are on Christian catacombs and in, in the in caves where the Christians used to gather and, and worship uh, on cave walls uh, also with the shroud of Turin they found there's no decomposition when they examined it scientifically they found no evidence of of flesh coming off onto the cloth of, of decay, no decomposition, yet they also were puzzled. They were very puzzled because the blood stains and the clots are intact. And you might think, well, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is uh, if the blood stains and the clots are intact, then it seems to indicate that the guy was not taken out of the cloth. Okay? Um, in other words, 
if you take a guy that's already in a cloth and he's got blood stains on the cloth, they're no longer going to be intact. By you removing the body, it's going to mess up the blood stains and show evidence of him being removed. That isn't the case. And since there's no decomposition, what it says is that somehow, while in the state of rigor mortis, before decomposition set in, it appears that this body somehow dis disappeared from the cloth. Now, how do you explain all these factors through an ancient painting? It does not make sense. It does not make sense at all. We've got to examine all the evidence. By the way, the, in 1978, they show that the blood was human blood, the blood that is on that cloth. If it's the burial cloth of Christ, then it's, then it's Christ's own blood himself. Um, again, there's not, not much detail when you look at the cloth with the naked eye. Look at the second page. Not much detail to the naked eye. Yet, when you take a photograph of it and you look at the negative, a photographic negative has incredible detail. We talked about the Italian photographer named Secondo Pia who photographed it and was astonished when he was all alone in, in that black room and he looked at that negative and it blew him away. By the way, I, I personally believe, and I could be wrong, they might disprove me, but I believe because God knew that modern man was going to be so skeptical and wouldn't believe anything unless he had uh, empirical evidence, evidence that he could examine through the five senses, because of that I think God left us two witnesses for the modern skeptical man. Okay, and I could be wrong, and it's not an, they're not essentials to the faith, but I think that, uh, uh, that God left us with the burial cloth of Christ uh, as evidence of the resurrection, and number two, I think that God left us with a 450-foot-long boat on Mount Ararat. And uh, by the way, there's a radical Presbyterian out in Tacoma uh, that I'm going to be interviewing in, in the near future, Ed Crawford, who's been up Mount Ararat seven, several times since the 1970s and thinks he has finally zeroed in on where the ark actually is. But we've got eyewitness reports for centuries. Even Marco Polo claims to have seen the, the ark uh, uh, on Mount Ararat. And if you know anything about Marco Polo, he was very careful not to report things he could not back up. Okay? Um, but basically, though, the photographic negative has much more detail than uh, the shroud itself. So, um, again, I, there doesn't seem to be any way that a guy could fake that before the invention of photography. That's number one. And uh, n number two, it also seems like this is something that survived through the centuries uh, because people had respect for this piece of cloth, but it seems to be a piece of evidence that uh, is much harder to deny after 1898 than it was before. Okay? Um, the concept of negativity was not known until the 19th century. Uh, the image is also superficial. Superficial. Uh, in other words, the image is only on the top layer of the cloth. It doesn't soak through. Yet the blood stains, as blood stains do,